Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's podcast. My name is Stu Turley, President and CEO of the Sandstone Group. And I'll tell you what, we got a fantastic guest today. We have Kip Eidenberg, and he is with the AEM. And I'm going to let him go into that a little bit. He's with the Government Relations Group, and he gets up every morning and has a bourbon, hits his foot with a hammer so he can get through the day. Welcome, Kip. We sure appreciate you. Hey, Stu, uh, thank you so much to have for having me on. It's a real treat. I, I think that is perhaps the kindest introduction I have ever received uh, in my oh, close to 10 years with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. So I appreciate it. I, I, I'm looking forward to the to the conversation today. Well, thank you. You know, I have a very low bar. And, and so I want all of my uh, industry thought leaders to really feel comfortable and know that this is going to be the worst podcast that they're ever on. <laughs> Well, it's it's uh, it's somewhat appropriate then, Stu, that I'm that I'm speaking to you from Washington D.C., where on, on Capitol Hill the bar seems to be getting lower every single oh, day. When it comes I to am so progress. sorry. That's all now, right. Uh, what part of Capitol Hill do you live in? I mean, are you getting mugged on the way to the office? You know, that's a that's a it's a great question, Stu. We we are actually uh, our our Washington office is is downtown, just a stone's throw from the White House, uh, right on Franklin Square. So it's actually uh, uh, a part of the city that has uh, received a, a fair amount of uh, of investment in the past few years. So it's a really nice, nice, beautiful part of town. Nice. So we're, we're 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 staying safe okay, so good. far, at least. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, let's go through a little bit to help set the tone. You and I were chit-chatting right before the podcast. We have a ton of things that you're involved with, with your job, with what your organization is doing, and energy, uh, the supply chain, jobs, uh, coordination with the politicians. And I have a very low opinion of 99.9% .9 of the politicians right now. So uh, we want to hear what how we as Americans can help change things. So that's really the important part of that. And uh, tell us a little bit about what you got going on. Yeah, let me uh, let me give you the, the quick one minute overview of who we are, Stu, just for your just for your viewers. Uh, so so that may help them better understand our perspective on some of these issues. And I agree with you, by the way, on, on all of those issues are critically important to the future of, of our economy, of our country, uh, national security. So the Association of Equipment Manufacturers uh, coming up on 130 years next year. So we've been around uh, for some time. We're headquartered uh, in beautiful Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, I'm obviously in Washington, D.C., where I oversee all of our government relations activities. Really, the, the mission of AEM is to help move the equipment manufacturing industry forward. That means partly to make sure that the United States is the number one place in this world for equipment manufacturers to succeed, to create jobs, to invest in their communities, and to make world-class equipment, not just for the American market, but for markets around the world. So we are very proud of that mission. We've got a talented team here in Washington that gets up every day, uh, may or may not have a sip of bourbon. I can't speak to that. And get to work pushing for pro-manufacturing policies uh, that yep. ranges from investment in our infrastructure, uh, updating our permitting process, securing our energy independence, um, creating more opportunities for young men and women to get involved in manufacturing, uh, free and yep. fair trade, etc. So about a thousand member companies across the country, 2.3 million jobs that we support, and wow. uh, about 300 and some billion dollars worth of economic activity every year. Wow. The U.S., in my opinion, is at a crossroads. And we need uh, active uh, discussions 
on what's going on. So let's go through a, a little bit of what the world is facing. In my opinion, I want you to help guide me as well too. Our supply lines and infrastructure and energy and the energy transition. And so when we sit back and take a look at our supply lines and the jobs for manufacturing, it took us decades, but we offloaded a lot of our manufacturing jobs around the world. It's about to come back and hit us in the back of the head with a shovel or a backhoe, whichever one you want to use. And these manufacturing jobs, uh, I want to ask your opinion on grid equipment and things like that. We just recently had 400 big pieces to the grid come in that were made from China, and they had documented bugs and uh, back doors into them from China. So those things can now be shut down or destructed at will from China, yet they still were put in to the grid. How in the world can you do what? You talk to people and not make that happen, get the jobs back in the U.S. and secure the U.S. citizens? I mean, that's about 19 questions right there. Well, and, and all great questions. And by the way, I'll, I'll take that backhoe because uh, that means one more piece of equipment uh, being sold. So let's go with that analogy, Stu. Uh, I mean, like these are these are, you know, whether they're 19 or, or 1900 questions, right? They are all good questions. They're all questions that need to be asked. Uh, we You said it uh, really well. We are at a crossroads uh, as a country, I think, you know, in, in many regards, but we're talking about manufacturing. So particularly when it comes to manufacturing, manufacturing is a critical piece of the U.S. economy, uh, not just a, the slice of it that, that we occupy, which is about one ninth of the total U.S. manufacturing sector, uh, but but manufacturing as a whole, it, it's it's the engine that drives the U.S. economy. And you know, with globalization, and and you know, you could get me started down the path here of talking about the World Trade Organization and and you know, NAFTA 1.0 or, or 2.0 and. You know, I'm not going to go quite that far. This is not a history podcast, but but obviously ours is a ours is a global economy and and trade. Yes, it is important. Thirty percent of all the equipment that's made here in America by Americans is destined for trade. That's a good thing. We want to sell more equipment to customers around the world because it means ultimately more economic activity here in the United States, more jobs in Texas, more jobs in Iowa and Pennsylvania uh, across the country. But I think we have um, forgotten some of the uh, challenges that comes with a globalized world. And that is when we are uh, allowing key parts and components, whether they are the pieces that go into the grid. Uh, obviously, energy is critical to this country. It helps power all the factories that our members have that makes the equipment, right? And, and there's obviously a host of other reasons why energy and energy independence is important. Uh, but whether it's pieces of equipment that go into the grid, whether it's semiconductors, that's been a buzzword in Washington and around the country for some time now, that go into the equipment or other critical components, engines, et cetera. Uh, we are now finally waking up and realizing that, you know, it is important that some, if not most or all of that is made either here in the United States or in friendly nations so that when either a catastrophic event like the pandemic happens or God forbid, you know, a crisis, uh, be it in the South China Sea, the Taiwan Straits, you know, Asia, Europe, wherever, that we remain in control of our supply chains as far as that is possible. I think if, if the past few years has taught us anything is that supply chains matter uh, and they are fragile. And we've seen how they've broken down overnight. You remember the, the images on television with all those uh, ships anchored off the port of Long Beach? Uh, 
components sitting on a ship for three months, six months, waiting to get offloaded. All of this, I think, if there's a silver lining here, has finally woken people up to the fact that we got to do a better job of protecting our supply chains, reshoring or friendshoring, but reshoring, friendshoring our our critical components, and then adapting a posture vis-a-vis the rest of the world that, that says that, you know, if you are a friendly competitor, we'll compete with you. Uh, we still believe that we're the best place in the world to make equipment, but we'll compete with you on a level playing field. If you're not a competitor, if you're an adversary, well, guess what? You know, we're not going to be taken advantage of any longer. How does the dollar fit in? Because when you're looking at trying to get jobs in, we, I mean, we have the inflation, we have BRICS, the weaponization of the dollar. How does that play in? Because BRICS is looking at dividing the entire country, the dire world into one side is going to be manufacturing and then the U.S. is going to be manufacturing. So is there going to be better uh, negotiations with trading with Europe? after BRICS is put in place? Have you talked to anybody about that? Or is that something even on your radar? No, it's it, it's part of, of that puzzle, right, that our right. member companies are, are putting together every single day in terms of where is the most advantageous geographic location to make right. equipment. I believe that the U.S. dollar is still the envy of the world uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the premier currency for trade, uh, the premier right. currency for uh Countries to use, um, you know, as as reserve. Obviously, you know, we've seen the the euro, uh, and I'm not a I'm not a fiscal expert or a monetary policy expert, but we've seen the right. euro, you know, assume a more important position around the world too. And and you know, that's that's a that, those are our friends, right. right? Ultimately, I think that's less of a concern. Many of our member companies obviously manufacture not just in the United States, but in Europe, you know, Latin America, uh, Asia. Uh, but it's 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 a part of the puzzle. And, and Stu, I think it, it gets us to the point that we've been trying to make in Washington uh, for the past several years. And that is whether it's monetary policy, whether it's right. regulatory policy, uh, whether it's trade policy, whether it's investment in workforce and infrastructure. We've got to get serious about creating an environment in this country that benefits job creators. At the end of the day, you know, our member companies, what they want to do is that they want to invest in their communities. They want to hire more people. They want to grow their operations right here in the U.S. and want to create a better country, a stronger economy. And we can do that. I'd say that we can do 95 percent of that, Stu, or maybe 99.9 percent of our number from earlier. But there's a part that's controlled by the federal government and we need their help. We need them to be partners. We need them not to erect more barriers. For us right. because that's what's going to slow us down and that's ultimately what will what will be our adversary's benefit right right i'll tell you what's fun uh is your answer was really really cool because it really adds into uh the energy policy and germany germany's uh has just gone through the roof as far as expense goes for their energy. They've had bad energy policies. This past week, they are blowing up a, or they're tearing down a wind farm to go back to coal. They're now importing more nuclear. And I'm going at this because you brought up a great roundabout. And I don't know if you really intended to, but Volkswagen and all their industry is leaving. And I think that you're poised with your organizations and your reach to try to bring some of those jobs and manufacturing for foreign people into the U.S. because of the way things are going. Did I get that wrong? 
No, you 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 got it absolutely right. Um, our industry, I mentioned earlier, two point three million jobs across the country. We have eighty five thousand, eighty five thousand job openings uh, currently. Wow. Do and you know you you look around the country. Uh, I was in in Iowa earlier this year, Northwest Iowa, negative or close to negative population growth. Uh, part of that is due to yeah. internal migration. Young people moving away from that part of, of of Iowa. And by the way, I'm not picking exclusively on our friends in Iowa. The problem is similar in other parts of the country. I just happened to spend some time in, in that in that great state earlier this year. So you're looking at you know internal migration. You're looking at low birth rates, and then you're looking at great companies that have been there for three, four, five generations. Not just in our industry, but right. in other industries as well. Certainly, farm operations that are multi generational, multi generational equipment manufacturers in, in Iowa and Wisconsin, across the Midwest. Well, they can't just up and leave. They can't just, you know, pick up that factory and those hundreds, if not thousands of jobs and relocate. Some of them think wish they could. You know, there's some, there's some very favorable opportunities in, in your neck of the woods. A lot of businesses moving down to Texas, yep. but we don't, you know, we, we, we want our, we want our equipment manufacturers to be spread out across. You know this country. Um, right. We want them to 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 prosper and remain there in those communities. They are, in many ways, they are the anchors of the communities that they've served for you know dozens, if not hundreds, of years. And so they cannot just leave. And so we need more people. Eighty five thousand jobs. The average salary in our industry is just south of uh, ninety thousand dollars. That's thirty three percent above the national average. So these are good family sustaining jobs. So how do we fill those jobs? Well. There's a combination of things, right? Part of it is encouraging more young people mm-hmm. years in manufacturing. And we got a responsibility there, Stu. I don't think we've done a good enough job over the years to really tell our story and talk about why a career in our industry can be a great career. Uh, but we also need more people. And you know, this is this is where I, I sometimes, you know, get a, run into a little bit of trouble here in Washington. Not everyone is is open to this way of looking at it. But right. immigration, if done right, is a good thing. People who want to come here legally, be part of the American dream, roll up their sleeves, work, right. build a life, a career. We we need to welcome those people. They should they should absolutely be part of it. Now, obviously, there's more to it than that, right? And I know we're not talking exclusively about immigration reform. Obviously, we need to secure the border. Obviously, we need to reform, you know, the process by which people come here and are granted, you know, the opportunity to stay. You know, that has completely gotten out of control. I think everyone agrees you know, to that if, if they are honest with themselves. But at the same time, we still need people to come here because guess what? Otherwise, you know, you and I having this conversation 10 years from now, I'll be telling you that we've had some member companies who've had to either shut down or move their right. business because they just can't find enough people. So yes, uh, that was a roundabout way or a long way of getting to your question, which was, yes, you know, we, we need more workers. We need policies that encourages more people right. to get attract more people from around the world to come here and work, be part of the American dream. Uh, and build a life for themselves. Oh, you bet. I, I'm just not a fan of the open border. And I got blasted on Twitter. I have been just brutalized. I love people brutalizing it. It means that I'm actually uh, getting out there and uh, having fun. My uh, So I love immigration. I am with you, Kip, 300%. Immigration is fabulous. Let's do it right. Because we want people to be, come to the U.S. and be very happy, fruitful citizens, you know, uh, it's just how do we encourage, how can we encourage the Volkswagens of the world 
or the others without good energy policies and without good immigration policies. Energy is the number one. I mean, you got to have low cost energy or it ain't going to happen. So a hundred percent right. And I, I bet you, Stu, you've probably taken a few, you know, a little bit of incoming fire. Another related topic, which is, which is, you know, you mentioned we've got to have, we've got to secure energy independence. We've got to make right. sure that energy is affordable and available, not just for the average American family, but for the average American manufacturing company or any business. And so that obviously gets us to permitting reform. One of my oh. favorite topics. I know it's one of your favorite topics. <laughs> Uh, let me ask you a question, if you don't mind. I'll, I'll turn the tables on you here. What, what, what is the average time? Average time it takes for a project to obtain a federal permit depends on what area you're in. That's if true. It, if it's nuclear, it's ten years. Uh, if it, I mean that's the the ballpark from what I understand, and then that's only to get the initial approved. If it's a pipeline, it could be two to three years, and then it could go out extending more. This is my personal opinion, and this is what I've seen out there. So it's all uh, independent. But the regulatory issues is that what I've been seeing, what I've been grumping on is they are legislating through regulate uh, regulations. And so even though these uh, regulatory agencies are not elected, they are providing rules, delays in permitting that is equal to or greater than legislation. And our great oil and gas folks can't drill. Nuclear can't get there. Even storage, wind. There are now over 24,000 green projects held up. Two years ago, before the current administration, Biden administration came in, there were 8,000. Well, that's that's uh, that's uh, more than I was hoping for. That's <laughs> I learned something there, Stu. Uh, uh, <laughs> was that a good answer? <laughs> Answer. That was a great answer. Yeah, the the average, the average, and and you know that you know the numbers for the for the energy sector are a little bit better than I do. The average is just under five years. Now that is for all permits, right? Okay. So, right. but it brings me to to the number that that you mentioned, right? So, why in the world in the twenty first century in the United States of America should it take five to ten years to secure a permit? For an infrastructure project, the the word that your great friend and podcaster David would have used is absurd. It's absurd. Uh, and David, great. I want to give a shout out to David Blackman and Ray Trevino. Both of those guys are rock stars. Sorry, yep. didn't mean to cut oh, you off. They are credit where credit is due, and and you know it's it's beyond you know the impact is beyond the numbers because you know ultimately what this will do if it right. takes five to ten years, and actually for roads and bridges, the number is seven years. If it takes five, seven, 10 years to get a permit, to build a road, to move right. products from factory to port or to customer, right. or to build a new plant to provide energy for American homes, American factories, right? that's five to seven to 10 years where we are delaying moving our country forward. And I, I want to be clear before I start getting some of those same inbounds that, that, that you inevitably will get. Look. Our regulatory system, the basic structure of our regulatory system is right. designed so as to prevent bad things from happening. And that is a good thing. Yes. Now, right? I think we can agree on that, Stu. That is, that, is, that is what we need the regulatory system for. However, we have this opportunity right now in front of us, this incredible, tangible opportunity, $1.2 trillion worth of opportunity to make good things happen. And when the regulatory system 
stands in the way. It's not about cutting corners here, mind you, right? It's, it's about right. moving the country forward, putting the $1.2 trillion that was in that infrastructure bill to work. Right. If it takes five to seven to 10 years, well, we're never going to realize the full potential of that investment. And I'll give you an example. Right. China, one of our great adversaries right now, right. They're, they're planning to build 1,800 miles of new railroad tracks this year. This year alone, 1,800 miles of railroad tracks. Now, wow. Amtrak's new high-speed train that runs from Boston down to Washington. Now, deployment of that train is being delayed yet again because the tracks are too old and too busted. So you look at it from that perspective, I mean, setting aside the jobs that are not being created, the products that are not being built, the prosperity that is not you know, flowing into communities that need it. I mean, our competitiveness, our national security is at risk here if we cannot reform our permitting system. Uh, you, Kip, you just bring up some great points. I can tell that you and I, when you get down to Dallas, we're going to have to do some serious, uh, uh, have a nice dinner and uh, uh, have David and uh, our Ray with you there. But uh, it, t- let's take the great state or great country of California because they want to be their own country. They've had that what uh, that high speed tr- uh, rail uh, line that they've been trying to put in. Was it 15 years or something like that? It is a billion dollars over budget and nothing has been done. That sounds like a lot of graft. Uh, I mean, you know, how do you uh, get that out? And let's leave that one alone. But what- nope. just as a quick, because I, I can't leave that alone because oh, I. Sorry. <laughs> oh, that's OK. I think it's I think it speaks to the bigger problem here. Right. I, I could all agree, Democrat, independent, Republican, that right. having a high speed train running from, you know, San Francisco or Sacramento, all the way down along the coast, down to San Diego, and then maybe across to to Las Vegas is a good thing. It, it, yep. it is yet another mode of transportation for whether they are residents of California, uh, people who are going to Nevada to work, uh, to have a little bit of fun. People right. are visiting us from you know other countries, fly in to San Diego or LA and then take the train over. I mean, all of this helps spur economic activity. It's not it's not that it's going to come at the expense of people wanting to drive or at the expense of the airlines. There's so many people in this country. And then all the tourists and foreign visitors, right. a good thing. But what it takes, I don't know, 15 years and God knows how many billions of dollars right. uh, for the, the details. But, but you know, I trust you here and we have nothing to show for it. And again, you know, the Chinese are putting down 1800 miles of new you know, state of the art tracks this year and- alone. And two, uh, two minimum two coal plants a, a week, you know, and that's the problem. Using, yeah. And think about all the jobs that could be created building that high speed rail link from California down to Nevada or even up and up, 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 up the coast of California. I mean, these are the, you know, the, the word or the phrase rather that comes to mind is missed opportunity or rather missed opportunities. Oh. It's whether it's the, you know, the, the, the nuclear power plant, the, the rail link, the bridge, the road, right. uh, the, the, the improvements to locks and dams and waterways to the grid. It's, right. it's all opportunities to strengthen our economy, strengthen our national security and create more jobs for Americans. Well, how do we how do we get to that point where, you know, you, you sit back and think, OK, we got great jobs, got a great project. We get the reform. Let's say, Kip, that you guys just hit it out of the park. We get our reform done. Like the uh, Porculus bill, I mean, excuse me, the Inflation Reduction Act. Dan Bongino, I got to give a shout out to Dan Bongino because he does call it the Porculus bill. 
there was only like uh, a million, less than a million dollars uh, for the actual grid. And we can't put any renewables on the grid without more infrastructure. How do you balance out? Who in the world writes legislation? Does, does the AEM help with that? Well, we, we certainly take every opportunity afforded to us uh, to, to provide input, working with uh, lawmakers up on Capitol Hill, um, Democrats and Republicans who, who, uh, who are aligned with us when it comes to the importance of investing in our infrastructure, be it, you know, right. bridges, energy. And, you know, we, we remind the, uh, the White House every chance we get that, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. And, you know, the, the, the good news, perhaps this may sound strange to some of your viewers, listeners, but the good news is that, you know, there's always an opportunity to, to right the ship a little bit. So whatever, you know, the, the infrastructure investment and jobs act. So that, that was the big infrastructure bill that passed before the right. inflation act, you know, right. a lot of, there's a lot of money in there for various infrastructure projects. Now, if some of it isn't properly targeted or well, there's not enough resources, right. for example, for the grid, right? You mentioned that and I agree with you. We need to, we need to do everything we can to secure, you know, invest in and secure, modernize and secure our grid. Then there right. is an opportunity for lawmakers to, to fix that. And so that's why we keep reminding them day in and day out that the job is not done. The job is never done um, oh, until, yeah. until those new roads and bridges are being built, until those new power plants are going up, until our ports are modernized. So I think I think we got to just stay vigilant. We got to stay on mission, uh, and we're going to keep reminding them. And and look, sometimes it, it feels like you know Sisyphus and, and the rock, right? Yeah. Uh, you start over every day. But I'd like to think that that's also part of our. Part of our process, it's part of democracy, right? We we just gotta, we just can never give up because if we do, then those power will never be built. And guess what? Eventually, we like. By the way, I should say we like foreign direct investment, right? I mean that that is one of those things. Tend to think of that as the U.S. going, you know, American companies investing overseas. But there are lots of you mentioned VW. There are lots of great equipment manufacturers from from Europe, from Asia. You know, from Japan, from Korea, Germany, from Sweden, from France that have invested here in the U.S., created jobs, you know, South Carolina and Tennessee, uh, across the country. We want more of that because we want them to invest here rather than maybe in their home countries, right? Because that means more economic right. jobs. So we got to keep that in mind that if we want more companies to establish themselves here, if we want more young entrepreneurs to pursue right. their to be the next Caterpillar or the next Deer and Company or the next Case IH, well, we got to have an environment that is conducive to that. And that means energy independence. Yes. And I'll tell you, I just want to give for my, uh, this is, I guess, a preemptive strike on the trolling from Twitter and anybody else. Okay. I am energy agnostic. I don't care what form of energy we use. I want the lowest kilowatt per hour delivered to all citizens of the world without printing money and with the least amount of impact on the on the environment. Okay, I'll talk to anybody about numbers. Come on the show. And that means renewable technology wise is not there yet. However, that being said, Frere Battery out of Norway is the only storage company that has recyclable batteries. Recyclable is huge to me. And that changes the paradigm shift for the renewable industry for solar panels, for wind, for storage. And they are taking advantage of all of that money coming in on the 
the IRA as well as the the first one in order to build batteries, a battery plant and storage and and help out. Yes. If you're going to have renewable, you got to have storage. And, uh, you know, I've interviewed both the president and CEO of Freer. Great people. How do we get recycling done on all of this technology? And I think that would eliminate most of this hate uh, discussions back and forth. But till then, you can't print you can't print money and be fiscally sustainable. You, I mean, you it just cannot. Cannot. And I think your point is is well made, right? It's 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 battery capacity and recyclability. And I can tell you, you know, our our big um, one of the other things that AEM does is we, we put together these large trade shows for our industry to bring our members mm-hmm. together with their customers and partners. Um, the largest trade show actually in the in the northern hemisphere is every three years in Las Vegas, Nevada. Con Expo, Con Ag. We just wrapped it up in March of this year. I tell nice. you. It, it's not until 2026, but you and David ought to come in 2026 and we'll walk around and we'll look at some great, great equipment and talk about energy independence and infrastructure investment. But a lot of our member companies this year, Stu, were, were debuting, uh, launching models, um, whether, you know, skid steer loaders, uh, articulated haulers, excavators that are either hydrogen or, you right. know, powered, you know, electric. And the challenge is the same for our industry as it is for the auto industries. How do you make a battery that doesn't weigh a ton? And I, I mean that as a euphemism, right? They, they, some of them right. more than that, which then, you know, obviously puts additional drag on the equipment if you're carrying this large battery right. around. Get enough hours out of it so that you can do, you know, eight hours on a work site before you have to recharge. And then how do you recycle it? And we're not there yet. We'll get there. I'm convinced, you know, I'll take American ingenuity and grit over any other country any day of the week. So we'll get right. there. Meantime, we need power. And, you know, I, I chatting with a few lawmakers in, in Wisconsin about this, you know, last month. And the analogy that I use is that, look, you know, a lot of people, you know, put solar panels on their on the roof of their houses, right? It's a great way of, you know, cutting down, you know, on your energy bill a little bit, you know, getting a little relief there, uh, which a lot of American families desperately need, and easing up a little bit of the pressure on the grid, you know, you're diversifying your energy supply. But I haven't met a single American family who will put solar panels on the roof and then turn off their other their other power, their gas or their electricity that they're buying or sourcing. I mean, you can't just live or run a house, I mean, the average family home on just the solar panels alone, right. but it's a way of supplementing. And many of our member companies do are doing the same thing. They're putting solar panels on the roof of their factories. Right. And, but it doesn't mean that you cut off all the rest of it, right? And I think that's the same debate that we need to have at the national level is, yes, we should be moving aggressively towards these other sources of energy. I agree with you. I'm energy agnostic too, whether it's wind, whether it's water, whether it's solar, you know, whether it's- Nuclear. Love nuclear. Love nuclear. But we got we to gotta have, we got to rely on the other sources, you know, natural gas and oil. Were, were you doing a Bush imitation right there? Nuclear? Good grief, Kip. We got to get you some language. Are you been down in Texas lately? Well, you know, a few times this year and, and heading oh, okay, back. Okay, cool. Well, I, I guess it's rubbing off on me, but. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to. You know, I, 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 I got to set that bar low, Kip. Remember, this is the worst podcast you've ever I'll been I'll take that comparison any day of the week. That is a good comparison. But the point, the point still stands, right? Is that, you know, I'm with you. Our industry is with you. We look at this as where can we. You know, where not only where can we find, you know, the skilled labor to work, you know, with us to yeah. build 
this great equipment here, you know, but where can we find affordable, reliable energy to put our right. facts to work, um, power them? And so I don't care if we woke up tomorrow morning and we had affordable, reliable, round the clock energy power, powered exclusively by hydro. Great. But that's not going to happen. And even if right. it happens, we need diversity for national security yeah. purposes. We cannot put all our eggs in one energy basket. Sorry, yeah. I didn't mean Stu, but I, this no, is important. No, the the perm. I was just laughing because it it would uh, the permitting on a dam would be uh, uh, 15, 20 years. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there you go. So we gotta we got you know every president since Richard Nixon has tried permitting reform. Every president since Richard Nixon has tried permitting reform, and every single one has failed. And I, yeah. I firmly believe that it's just it's a mindset issue. It's we we gotta wrap ourselves around this idea that. Just because we are spending a little bit of time, you know, less time than, you know, 10 years or seven years to permit a infrastructure project doesn't mean that we're cutting corners. It doesn't mean that we don't care about the environment, our communities. It just means actually the opposite. Because, again, if we're not moving briskly ahead towards the future with these investments, we're going to be left behind by our adversaries. You know, Kip, I don't want to give you a compliment, but I love your uh, aspect of not only trying to work with the jobs, but you're looking at all the ancillary issues around it from a holistic view. And your article on the Hill was fantastic. Uh, I loved the article when you're talking about the the whole problem with maybe the immigration is not you know, the border or something. It's the guys in, in Washington love the way that you did that. And you also had your uh, 80,000, 88,000 email blast that you're trying to get your word out there and you're trying to help out. How can people get in touch with you? How can people find out more about what you're doing to help the, the average bear in America? Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to to make a plug for our, our campaign. Our campaign is called I Make America. It, it's, it's founded 13 years ago, launched 13 years ago here in Washington, D.C., up on Capitol Hill with our friend Mike Rowe. It's got a straightforward... I love Mike Rowe. Great, isn't he? Yeah, uh, he's great. Uh, straightforward, simple mission just to, to advocate for pro-manufacturing policies. It's, it's not blue. Yep. It's not red, right? It's not Democrat. Yep. It's not looking. It's red, white, and blue. It's all about making more things in America. Uh, yep. Anyone interested in getting involved can go to hub.imakeamerica.com. That's H-U-B, hub.imakeamerica.com. Sign up, take action. As you mentioned, we sent 88,000 emails to lawmakers earlier this year uh, around infrastructure investment, energy independence, and permitting reform. Um, right. And frankly, Stu, that is the only way that this will get done because you know yep. I can spend every day of the week up on Capitol Hill. My colleagues here can spend every day of every week up on Capitol Hill. And we're just one out of many, many, many business organizations, trade associations in Washington. Even if we right. all lawmakers need to hear from their constituents, the people that they right. represent. And they got to tell them, listen, if you don't help us, now we, we can't help ourselves. We're doing everything we can to build the equipment right. right here in America, but we need a little bit of help. We don't, we don't need a lot. We don't want a handout. We just need a level playing field and a regulatory system that is sound and, and based on science. And then make sure that we are set up to be able to effectively compete against, you know, our friends and competitors. That's right. good competition. And those that are trying to uh, make us compete with one hand tied behind our back, whether it's through intellectual property theft or forced technology transfers, you know who I'm talking about and that no more, right? That the 
right. the advantage of American foreign direct investment to steal our intellectual property, those days are over. Right. I'll tell you, if you uh, get out and reach out to uh, Mike Rowe, tell him uh, I said hi. He won't know who I am, but he's always got an open invitation to come on the podcast because I re- really, really love his his work and everything he stands for. Um, uh, he's just a cool cat as far as I can tell. So I wish we could clone him because the reality is we need yep. we need a thousand or ten thousand Mike Rose because if you know people talk about how you know you you solve the workforce crisis at the high school right. level, I think you saw, saw you the only way to solve the workforce crisis is at the middle school or elementary school level. You need wow. some Mike Rowe to go in and talk to a bunch of second or third graders and show them just how cool manufacturing is and what right. great they can have. I think when they're in high school, it's too late. They've already been convinced that the only way to success is a four year college degree. And again, nothing right. like that, but that is not for everyone. And, you know, we cannot have an economy where everyone is a sociologist or a mathematician or a right. history. We need welders. We need fabricators. We need carpenters, electricians, great jobs, great careers. So I wish we had more micros because I think we need it desperately. Yeah. You know, I I remember going through high school and I loved shop, love the wood shop, love the metal shop, uh, uh, did sword, uh, did, uh, you know, everything from uh, welding and, and everything else. And I was the only guy in the typing class. Typewriters were just, you know, I'm so old, you know, Noah and I are buddies and I learned how to type and, and I got dates out of the, the typewriting. You know, it was wonderful. You know, you're sitting in there and it's kind of like, this is kind of cool. But the only um, guy in the class? Do what now? You said you were the only guy in the class and the typing I was, class? Yeah, in typing. So, but that's the kind of education the kids are not getting. I mean, now I'm a podcast host, CEO of my own company. I have four other offices and I have 10 screens in each office. Now, can I go out and outwork everybody still? Yeah, I still do a couple tons of cement when I can. And I'm a micro kind of guy. I like ah, I had to do a sewer here a couple of weeks ago, you know, so I don't care. I would love to go do a, something with Mike on that and you. So if we get Mike and we can get him out on some kind of oil field job, let's get you out there and a manufacturing job. I would I would love that, Stu. And, and jokes aside about your, your typing class, which sounds like a, a success on many levels for you. <laughs> uh, so we, we, we need we need. Yes, we need typing. We need home economics. We need shop. We need civics. You know, we, we have. Uh, oh, we thank you. This before the podcast. Right. We, we have we have forgotten how to disagree without being disagreeable. And we've forgotten about what it means to be part of a uh, of a republic. And right. For- it means to have, you know, civil discourse about some of our biggest problems. Too much time is spent, you know, slinging mud on social media. That helps no one. It certainly doesn't secure energy independence. It doesn't doesn't right. get people into careers in manufacturing. So I would say, you know, more shop, more home economics. Yes, more typing, Stu, and certainly more civics. And I think we'll be much better off as a country. You know, Kip, I can tell this is not going to be our uh, last podcast. I want you to come back and anytime you have things that you need to share, please let us know. We want to help get the word out for you for our great American workers and, and everything else. I just truly like your holistic uh, approach to everything you got going on. How do people get in contact with you? Well, uh, they can they can either again go to hub.imakeamerica.com or they right. can send email kideberg at aem.org. Uh, they can 
uh, yep. hopefully send me some nice, uh, interesting tweets on, on Twitter. I guess we're supposed to call it X now. Uh, but my handle is at Kip Eideberg. So, a, a, you know, I'll take any comments, any feedback. You know, I think it's it's anytime you can start a conversation about the future of, of manufacturing, it's a good thing. And, and Stu, I got to tell you, this has been a real treat. Um, I will take you up on your offer. I'll, I'll be in Texas later this year. Uh, let's get together. Let's keep talking about it because and, and I appreciate I should say I appreciate what you and, and David, what you're doing on on energy because uh, not enough is being done. And I think far too many people take it, you know, they, they're so used to flipping the switch when they get home from work and just expect the lights to go on, you know, the, the phone to charge, the oven to start without giving any thought to the work that goes into, you know, making sure that they have that affordable, reliable power that we all, by the way, so desperately need. So thank you for what yeah. you are doing. It's, it's, a, it's really important. Well, thank you. I wish I didn't know what I know and who I talk to around the world because uh, the average American is not ready for what could possibly happen. And uh, we would not take life without power. We will take it life without power worse than Africa. People at least there know how to deal with it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that is a that is a scary and sobering uh, note to end this. this <laughs> So I will just, but it is important, Stu. It is important. And I, again, I, that's, I meant what I said. That's why podcasts such as yours are so important because people do right. need help and recognize that. And, and so I, you know, anything that, that we can do as an industry, Scott yes. knows we need safe and reliable and affordable power too. You know, we're, we're here. We're a partner with you in this yes. mission. Great and mission. it's about humanity and making the world better. So thank you, Kip, for stopping by on that cheery note. (laughs) Thank you so much. A real treat. And I hope to see you in Texas real soon. Absolutely. 